Hey, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. There might be a Bible in the rack in front of you, uh, underneath the chair in front of you. You could follow along that way. And also, if you happen to have a smartphone and you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can get on that and uh, just click on the menu and look for an event near you, and you will find uh, the notes and the uh, scripture to go along. Kind of, it's a way to cheat. It makes it kind of easy for you if you have the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. So when I was a kid, one of the things I looked forward to the most was driving a car. How many of you would say, yep, that was me. I just couldn't wait till I was 16. I wanted to drive a car. Yeah, some of you there. I was that, I was that kid. And I think one of the reasons for that is because when I was eight years old, my older brother bought a 1969 Dodge Charger. Now, eight years of age, and I knew, I knew what a 383 four barrel was. That's a remarkable thing. No wonder that I was dying to drive because I just wanted to do that. And uh, I, I couldn't wait until I turned 16 so that I could drive. But as I approached that age of driving, something bad happened. And it was something called the energy crisis. Uh, some of you are old enough that you're nodding. Yeah, I remember seeing the no gas today signs. Do you remember that if you're License plate ended in an odd digit. You could go on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if it was even, then you got the other days and all that kind of crazy stuff with that shortage. And what was the worst thing for me, I, that was 1973. And so at that point, I'd been 11 or 12 years of age. The worst thing for me was, if I'm 11 years old, the worst thing for me was many sources, authoritative sources believed that we would be out of oil within five years. Some of you are nodding. You remember hearing that, right? Yeah. Do the math. I'm 11 years old. You can drive when you're 16 in Pennsylvania, and we're going to be out of gas in five years. Ah, isn't that just my luck, right? There's a gas shortage. We're going to be out of gas. I'm never going to get to drive. And I was alarmed. I was worried. I was angry. I was scared. And as it turned out, there was lots of gas. There was lots of oil. They just wanted more money from us. That's all that was, right? But yeah, it was a shortage. And shortages are always alarming. Shortage of medicine. That's a scary thing, right? A shortage of water. Check with the people in Flint, Michigan about that. Shortage of workers. A shortage of food. A lot of different shortages, a lot of different places. I feel like we're dealing with a shortage that maybe we don't even know how to verbalize in our society today. And I'm going to call it a shortage of kindness. That we're kind of not having an oil crisis today, but maybe we're having a kindness crisis. And I want to suggest to you, this is really nothing new. It's not like all of a sudden this is happening. It's happened for years and years and years. And I also want to say this shortage of kindness is not something that is isolated to our country. On Friday, I don't know if you saw this in the news, news outlets reported that a passenger bus had crashed and gone off of a bridge in China into the Yangtze River. Did you see that in the news? And of course, there's video cameras everywhere these days. So they were in the bus and they were seeing the driver and they were outside of the bus in other cars and you got to watch it crash through the rail and go over. What happened when you looked at the video of that, um, you could see that there was a passenger that, that they say that the bus had missed her stop. The bus driver forgot to stop to let her out. So she hit him with her phone and he hit her back and then he lost control. And the bus careened over that uh, bridge edge and went 200 feet into 200 feet of water. And the BBC reported there were no survivors. But when you view that video more closely, it's actually worse than was first thought. Here's what you see. You see a woman intentionally striking a bus driver. You see the bus driver intentionally striking her back. 
And then, not because he's involved in some physical altercation, but you see the bus driver intentionally turn that wheel sharp. He's not even being pushed or shoved or anything. It appears that he intentionally turns the wheel into the bridge bridge railing, and everyone plummets to a watery grave. It wasn't the act of one person. It wasn't the act of a couple people accidentally fighting and causing that thing. It was a kindness crisis. But there was no kindness going on between the two of them. Now, if that happened here, (laughs) there would be those who would blame our politicians. And I will say to you that civility is sorely lacking in our governmental affairs. You can think of it, though, as a kindness crisis. I'm not defending any politician. You know that? Never had? Never will. (laughs) But what I'm saying is it's bigger than that. It's bigger than Washington. It's bigger than the United States. It's, It's worldwide. And it happens all over the place. This is in China, for crying out loud. And, and it, it's in sort of a remote area of China. I went back and watched again the video from the car that, was, that you see the bus going. And, and the bridge, by China standards, that bridge is it's empty. It wasn't even crowded. What pushes a woman to clout a bus driver in that environment? Probably a lot of things. But one of those is there's a kindness crisis. And what is it that motivates a bus driver to punch her back? Probably a lot of things, but one of them is a kindness crisis. What is it that motivates the bus driver to end his own life and more than a dozen other lives as a result? Probably a lot of things. One of them is there's a kindness crisis because we live in a world where kindness seems to be in short supply. So where do you go to find kindness? I mean, where do you see kindness? You know that I watch the uh, six o'clock news pretty regularly. I watch the local news and then I I go from network to network to network. It takes about one viewing before I'm tired of that network and I have to go to the other one, you know? Um, I I watch that pretty regularly and at the end of each evening, at the end of the network news, they give you that feel-good segment. You know what I mean? About somebody who found a puppy and gave it back to its owner, that thing, you know? I'm so glad they do that because it erases all the ugly that they just showed me for the past two hours, right? Do you find kindness in the feel-good segment? Yeah, maybe a little, right? Maybe you would say, I find kindness better in some people I know. Maybe when we think of kindness, we think of uh, grandma. Did you have a kind grandma? That's a good thing, right? Or maybe you think of a Sunday school teacher. Or maybe you think of a neighbor or a friend. Those are better places to look than the 6 o'clock news, I guess. But I want to suggest to you that the best place for you to find kindness is at God, in God. That he is the author of kindness. And the Bible speaks about it over and over and over again. I'd like you to read with me Titus chapter 3. We're going to read four verses here, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And uh, then we're going to talk about that. Follow along silently as I read aloud. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So one of the first things I notice when I consider those verses is that God shows kindness without regard to our deeds, good deeds or bad deeds. And really, that is a key point of Protestant religion. (laughs) Protestant faith is built on five different real pillars. One of those is that salvation is a free gift. It is not something that you can earn. 
that God has extended his love to us without us doing something to get him to extend his love to us. We haven't received the love of God because we deserved it. It is not by our own merits. It is only by his kindness that we're saved from judgment. And I just read it in verse five. Look at verse five again. He saved us, here it is, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God's kindness has shown us without regard for our deeds. Why? Why do we receive his kindness? Well, the text said it's because of his mercy. And that really pushes back against the pop psychology that says we really should never see ourselves in a negative light. You know, the whole self-esteem movement, the whole idea that you should feel good about yourself and understand that you're worthy and you're a good person really pushes against what the Bible says regarding our state before we encounter Christ. There are those who teach that we can consider, should consider ourselves as worthy. And that is where pop psychology and good theology collide. Now, in one sense, you should see yourself as worthy. Okay, now pay attention to this. If you're like, I don't know if I agree with you, Pastor Steve. Just follow me here logically. In one sense, you should see yourselves as worthy. There are many things of which you are worthy simply because you're a human being. For example, you're worthy of respect from others because you're a human being. You're deserving of freedom to live your life well because you're a human being. You are worthy of the opportunity to pursue happiness. In fact, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You're worthy of that opportunity because you're a human being. But there are other things of which you are not worthy, nor am I. We are not worthy of God's saving grace in our life. If you are worthy of that, if you are deserving of that, then it's not a gift, it's your earnings. If you are worthy of God's love, then there's no need for mercy. And by the way, there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross because you didn't need it. You're worthy of escaping any kind of judgment. But that is not the case. None of us can earn our pardon. No one can earn a gift. It has to be given freely. Listen again to verse five. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And mercy is only given to people who can't earn it. And so you did nothing to make yourself worthy of salvation. When it comes to my relationship with God, I really don't want what I deserve because I know what I deserve is judgment. What I want is mercy. What I want from God is kindness. What I want is what he gives graciously. We need kindness because we really deserve to remain lost. And we might not want to admit that. We might want to say, well, it's not really my fault. There's someone else to blame. And if you're old enough to remember the Flip Wilson show, you remember Geraldine, and Geraldine would say, the devil made me do it. And she's just really parenting Eve, who said that in the Garden of Eden. But that line didn't carry any weight with God. I can try to blame others, but I can't fool God. The fact is that you and I have sinned, and so we became lost souls. And we have no excuse, and we cannot make amends for it through some kind of good deeds. We have no excuses, but what we have is hope. And we have hope because of Christ Jesus. 
The words that I've read to you now three or four times where it says, he saved us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Those words are actually preceded in the verse that I first read to you. Verse four says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It's our Savior who makes us, makes it possible for us to receive the kindness of God. In fact, the kindness of God cannot be separated from the person of Christ. It's like trying to have a candle flame and separate the light from the heat. They're together. And the kindness of God and the person of Christ are inseparable. The Bible even teaches us that Christ is essential for salvation. It says that a number of places. One of the places is in Acts chapter 4, where a sermon is being presented. And in that sermon, in verse 12, it says, Salvation, there's that word, is found in no one else, for there's no name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. No other name. Jesus alone can save you from judgment. The Buddha can't do it. The Buddha never claimed to be able to do it. Muhammad can't do it. He didn't even try to do it. None of the 33 million gods of Hinduism can save you. And you can't do it for yourself either. The Bible says only Jesus can save you. In fact, Jesus says, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that might seem a little unfriendly. I mean, it might even seem a little arrogant. In this pluralistic culture that we live in, it it just seems wrong for one religion to say, I'm the only way to God. It might even seem mean. But I would say that Christ's claim of uniqueness does not make God mean. It actually makes him kind. Because if he is the only one, and he does it, he's intensely kind. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're sick. If you're a parent, imagine that your child is sick. You love your child probably more than you love yourself. And the kind of sickness that your child has is a sickness that you know is not going to end well. This is one sick little boy little girl that you have. And imagine that you've been taking this child to different doctors and and then someone tells you this one doctor that has cured many children with the same kind of illness that your child has. He has the skill to kill him and, and or to kill him. Wow, that was a wrong sentence. Wow. There we go. He has the skill. This doctor has the skill to cure your child. That's the doctor I want to go to. When you go to that doctor, he says, I am the only doctor that has the skill to cure this. I know how to do this. It's good that you're coming to me. What does that make him? Arrogant? Offensive? Exclusive? Egotistical? Conceited? I don't know, but I do know this. I know if he says, I am the only one that has the skill to save your child, and I'll do it freely, even though it costs me greatly. I'm all in. And I'm not going to regard him as arrogant, offensive, egotistical, exclusive, or or conceited. I am going to regard him as kind. It's his kindness that stands out. You see, the exclusive claims of Christ get some bad press in our pluralistic society. Pluralism means we believe there are many truths, many ways, many, and, and we live in a pluralistic society. And the exclusive claims of Christ get some bad press there, and it's partially because we miss the point. We, we miss the fact that God so loved the world, he gave his only son for the world. Here, here, I have the cure. It's yours, take it. We miss the point that Jesus gave himself freely. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. That's kindness. 
We miss the fact that there's no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down his life for a friend. That's what Jesus did. That's kindness. And we kind of miss the point that the gift of God, the gift, gift, gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We kind of miss the kindness of God. Don't miss it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God's kindness is shown without regard for our good deeds. And God's kindness is shown with transforming kind of power. The end of that verse that I've read to you three or four times already, verse five, says he saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can spend a lot of time studying what that language means. I've been thinking a lot in recent months, even recent years, about the transformation that comes with the gospel. What is it about the gospel of Jesus Christ that God sent Jesus to die for our sins so that when we trust him, we can have eternal life? What is it about that concept that changes us? And it's a couple things. I'm not going to ask you to turn to Luke 17 because I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you about it. In Luke 17, Jesus is on his way and he's coming down from Upper Galilee here and he's coming down between Galilee and Samaria. He wants to go to Jerusalem over here. So he's traveling on this border between Galilee and Samaria on his way to Jerusalem where the temple is, where the priests are. As he's traveling along there, there are some lepers who are standing aside. And if you're a leper, you had to stand aside because you were considered to be contagious, maybe even cursed by God, so don't get near anybody. So you got these lepers, and they're not standing right along the road. They're kind of standing far away, and they're calling out to Jesus. And as they call out to Jesus, they say, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus' response to them is short and sweet. I mean, all that Luke says that Jesus says is six words. Go, show yourselves to the priests. And then Luke just says this. And as they went, they were cleansed. So as soon as Jesus says these, these men says these words, these men evidently start walking toward Jerusalem. And, and, and I'm thinking they're walking pretty quickly. Jerusalem is where the priests are. That's where they have to go. That's what Jesus told them to do. Go show yourself to the priest. So how quickly would you be walking to Jerusalem if someone you thought could heal you told you he did? I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I'm moving. I'm moving. It's like Laurel on Rails to Trails, my wife. She's hoofing it, baby. Jesus, on the other hand, is probably walking more like I walk on Rails to Trails. Uh, I'll catch up with you later. I'll catch you on a return trip, Laurel, you know? I'm not saying that because Jesus is lazy. I'm saying that Jesus is walking with a group of men, and one of the things they like to do when they walk was talk. So Jesus is walking at a normal human being's pace, but these guys, they're booking along there, walking in the same direction as Jesus, but out in front of him because of this new hope that they have. And as they walk along, they look at their skin, they say, my leprosy's gone. What about yours? Mine's gone too. And all 10 of them are like, our leprosy is gone. They're healed. Now listen to how the story ends. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, where are the other ten who were cleansed? We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine, rather, that were cleansed? Has no one, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Now, listen to these words. Then Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Get in mind what happened here. This guy was going along 
toward the priests. And when he realized he was cleansed, that kindness changed his heart and changed his path. It turned him around. It turned him toward Jesus. I used to feel like this story in Luke was just a, about how we all should be thankful people. And I preached it that way. And that would work. It'd be a great Thanksgiving text. Be thankful. But what I see now is this story is also about a heart when it responds to the kindness of Jesus. Or about nine hearts when they don't respond to the kindness of Jesus. All ten were cleansed. That's what it says in verse 14. But there's only one to whom Jesus says... Your faith has made you well. So the the skin of all ten lepers is healed by Jesus, but this lone man whose heart has been altered and whose life path has been altered, I mean, he physically turned around and went the other way to get back to Jesus. This one man is the one to whom Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And I don't know that you can demonstrate this from the text, but I just feel that Jesus might have been talking about more than your skin's all better, buddy. I feel like that he was just touched deep to his soul and transformed. Your faith has made you well physically, spiritually, emotionally, every way. Because when you saw the kindness of God, it touched your heart. And it changed you. And that's what the gospel does. You see, the kindness of God can give you a transformation that results in a a grateful heart. When you realize that you don't deserve God's love, you're not worthy of it. And that's why I spent the five minutes at the beginning of this saying you're not worthy of God's love, but you get it anyway. It wasn't to put you down. It was to show you how valuable his kindness is to you. When you realize you don't deserve God's love and you see that he gave it to you anyway, it can change you spiritually. It can change you emotionally. It can even change you physically. But that change does not happen to everyone. It doesn't happen to everyone. It really depends on you. Because the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And if you do not respond to the kindness of God, if you feel like maybe you don't need it because you are worthy, then your heart will not be changed. It will actually become harder But if you humbly receive the kindness of God, it will melt your heart. And that change will happen. But I have to say this. It is not just a transformation that results in a grateful heart as in an emotional change. There is a supernatural change that happens as well when you receive the kindness of God. Listen to the text in Titus again. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, and here's where the supernatural stuff happens. Through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, the Holy Spirit transforms your inner spirit, and that's a supernatural event. That's a miracle that happens to you. He washes you. He makes you new. Let me ask you something. Can you think of a greater kindness that God could offer you than washing away your guilt? Than scrubbing away your regrets? Than whisking away your sorrow? Than making you into a new person from the inside out? Than making you be able to stand up without shame regarding things in your past? To make you free from a burden of guilt? Giving you a new start, giving you a new heart? And putting his spirit in you so you can connect with him? Can you think of a greater kindness than that? that God could ever do for you. This phenomenon 
behind God's transforming power is his kindness. God's kindness is shown without regard to your deeds. God's kindness is shown in its transforming power. And God's kindness is shown by changing your destiny. Listen to the last verse that we looked at together. It's verse 7. It says, God has done these things, verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Two words I want you to see there. Hope and eternal life. Two concepts. And they can't be separated. And they belong to us as God's kindness makes us heirs. If you have turned to Christ, then as an heir, your eternal destiny is changed. And you don't fall under judgment. Jesus has fallen under judgment for you. When he went to the cross, he took your judgment. He stepped up to the plate. He died for your sins on the cross so that your eternal future is changed. The Bible says this again and again. If you're a Christ follower, God did not appoint you to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we may live together with him, therefore encourage one another and build one another up, even as in fact you're now doing. The Bible says that again and again and again, that if you've turned to Christ, your home is in heaven. Your future has changed. But there's more than that. If you have turned to Christ, then as an heir, your present everyday life is marked by hope. Every day of your life is different because of the hope that is within you. Every day is marked by hope for eternity. So one of the first Super Bowl, probably the first Super Bowl I ever watched, was Super Bowl IX. It was the Steelers versus the Vikings. That was a great game. But it was intense. The score, I think the ending score was like 16 to 6 or something like that. It was a pretty low-scoring game. I was 10 years old. I don't remember for sure, but I would lay money that I bit my nails until they bled, you know? Because it was intense. It's a Super Bowl. We'd never been there before. There's only been eight Super Bowls before this, and here we are. We're in it, and I was so nervous, and I just thought, and I can remember my dad. His favorite line was, take it easy. That's what you say to a hyperactive eight-year-old kid. Take it easy, or however old I was at that time. Oh, it was intense. So this week, I was just puddling around online, and I found that Super Bowl. It's right there. I can watch it again. Well, who has time, right? But I'm sitting in front of a computer doing some other work for another thing project I was working on. I have a big screen. I can put that up in the corner of my screen, and I'm going to watch that game. I let it stream in the background while I did some work. And I don't know why, but I wasn't on the edge of my seat. I didn't bite my nails. I wasn't nervous for a moment. It was not intense. Okay, I do know why. And you know why, too. In 1972, when I would have been 11 years old, I didn't know the outcome of that game. And so the future was uncertain. And I was very concerned because, after all, we're Steeler fans and this is our first time. And yeah, ah. But in 2018, it was a done deal. I knew how it would end. And I wasn't worried at all. You see, as a Christian, you know that Jesus secured your place in eternity so you can live differently than you once did today. You don't have to live on the edge of your seat. You don't have to be filled with anxiety. You don't have to bite your nails. You don't have to be tense. Instead, your present everyday life is marked by hope. And all of this 
is because of the kindness of God. You didn't do anything (laughs) except (laughs) as his kindness catches your attention, you turn toward him. You turn from your sin, your selfishness, your evil, your unkindness that lurks inside of each of our hearts. You turn away from that. Just like the leper was headed to Jerusalem and he turned around and went back to Jesus, you turn from that and you turn toward Jesus and you trust him and you begin following him. Have you done that? Have you done that? It is God's kindness that leads you to do so. In fact, Romans 2.4 says, It is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. So as we come to the communion table today, if you have never personally responded to God's kindness, do it now. Do it now. If you're like, you know what, I've just been in church and I kind of saw God's kindness as, yeah, that's cool, I get that, and just kept on walking. Don't just keep on walking, take it. What I'm asking you to do is to receive the kindness of God the way you would receive a meal, This is a meal. Communion is a meal. And you don't go to the church and have communion and they have it sitting out in the lobby there and maybe a couple deaconesses who set it up, put some roses and flowers and a nice painting in the background there. And there's communion and you just walk by and say, hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How do you like my walk? Like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I'll stand on my head to keep you awake. Okay. You do not just walk by the kindness of God. You partake of it personally. In a moment, the bread is going to come around. You're going to hold it personally in your hand, and it will represent the person of Jesus Christ, and you will take it personally. But unless you have taken him personally into your heart, unless you have received the kindness of God and turned around from the direction you were headed toward him and trusted his death to pay for your sin, then that that won't help you. If you've never personally responded to God's kindness... Do that now, in the quietness of your heart. Just find forgiveness as your heart turns toward his. And find hope as you trust in Christ's death for you. And, and I, 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 I just want to be as practical as I can in this matter. What I'm inviting you to do is in the quietness of your heart say, Jesus, I need your kindness. Jesus, Master, Take pity on me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, make me well. Jesus calls that getting born again. The Philippian jailer, from his experience, we call it being saved. Call it whatever you want. Just do it. If you've never personally responded to the kindness of God, do it now. Find forgiveness by turning to Jesus. Trust his death to pay for you as you walk with him. If you have done that in the past, then show your gratitude to him in communion. Just like that leper who had turned around and come back to Jesus, fell at his feet. In your inner being, fall at his feet again and say, God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you, thank you. This is why we take communion, to remember his great kindness to us. This is why we eat the bread and drink the cup to acknowledge that this is what we needed and without it we would starve to death. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. 
by the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What great kindness belongs to us. Let's celebrate it as we celebrate communion. I'm going to ask the musicians to come, and I'm going to ask the communion stewards to come. If you're a person who has never really made that personal, I'm not really sure that I'm that word saved, Pastor Steve. I'm not really sure that, that I've ever personally responded to God. I've even taken communion, but it's never, the spiritual thing never clicked with me before, but it's starting to today. Then you can talk to God, and I'm going to do that with you in just a minute. If you're an individual who you did that, but man, you just kind of walked away or wandered away from God, then, then as I pray this prayer with those who have never prayed it, maybe you in your heart can say, I want to renew this commitment, Jesus. This is me. This is me renewing my commitment. So let's bow our hearts together. And just uh, on your behalf, um, if these words fit with you, as I pray them on your behalf, um, you make them the prayer of your heart. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am not worthy. If I deserved to be in heaven, then you wouldn't have died. But you did die. In a moment, I'll have something in my hand that represents the body that went to the cross, and I'll have something in my hand that represents the blood that was poured out for me. So I know I'm not worthy. Sorry for thinking that I ever was. I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross to pay for my sins. What an act of kindness. And that kindness that you've shown me, Jesus, it grabs a hold of my heart. And just like that leper turned around and walked back to you, in my heart, I turn and I walk toward you, Jesus. I repent of my sins. I trust that your death on the cross pays for my sins, that I don't have to earn your love, and I will follow you. Forgive me, save me, walk with me. In Christ's name.